Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On June 15th, six storytellers shared their stories with our audience for our virtual slam. The theme for our June Story Slam was Happy Days. We heard stories about happy childhood moments from the perspectives of both child and parent, perspectives gained during the pandemic, and reminiscing before walking a daughter down the aisle to the altar. In the end, we had a tie. Our first winner was Jamie Beth Cohen, who shared how partying as a young person has affected the rest of her life. Here's Jamie Beth. So I was married on August 29th, 2004. It was exactly how I planned it to go, aside from being 90 degrees during the outdoor ceremony. But it was pretty perfect. And it was not the happiest day of my life. Nor were either of the days I gave birth to my two children, nor was the day I signed the contract for my first novel to be published. Because the fact is, all of my happiest days have been on ecstasy. Ecstasy, also known as E, X, MDMA, and now Molly, is a drug that combines the effects of stimulants and hallucinogens. Made for some pretty happy days. <laughs> but it was not supposed to be like that. I am a child of the just say no era. And I am a rule follower. By the time I graduated from high school, I had had one glass of wine paired with a lovely baked brie and French bread at my friend's house. I had smoked maybe a handful of cigarettes until I realized that I didn't actually know how to inhale and I just looked like an idiot. But for all the just say no education I got in high school, I think the thing that really kept me away from drugs and alcohol was a serious control issue and the movie Less Than Zero. For those of you who don't know it, Less Than Zero is a movie about three high school graduates in LA, all who have too much money and too much time on their hands, one of whom develops a serious addiction, gets cut off from his family's money, and his drug dealer pushes him into sex work to repay his very large debt. I don't think you can make drugs look any more unappealing than Less Than Zero made them look. So I stayed away. And it wasn't even really that hard. Until I didn't. In college, I was involved with the rave scene. They were great people. And the music was great. And the atmosphere was great. And just as there are social drinkers and social smokers, I discovered there are social ecstasy takers. I partied with these people for years, never doing drugs, but watching them take E, that's what we called it, every Friday night and showing up for work and school on Monday morning, no worse for wear. And they made it look really easy and really fun. So my senior year of college, over spring break, I flew out to Arizona to visit one of my raver friends, and we were at a party at a club, 
and there was E that had just come off the plane from Amsterdam. Now that doesn't happen anymore, and it almost never happened then, but I was fairly sure that it was gonna be the best stuff I was ever gonna try, so why not? And it was really, really goody. The E was so good that 24 hours later, in a bookstore in Flagstaff, Arizona, I was caught looking at poetry books and dancing in the aisle. And my friends found me and started laughing and I started laughing and I was like, sorry, this music is just really good. And I'm like pointing to the ceiling where I assume the music is coming from like hidden speakers and they were like, Jamie, there is no music playing in this bookstore. I was dancing to really good music in my own head. This is what we used to call having your own private rave. And I had plenty of them in my day. I could tell you stories of joy-filled, ecstasy-fueled adventures that would blow your mind. I went to a day party in the DC Armory and ran into my bank teller. There was a night that I was at a club in New York City and instead of dancing, I spent the whole time talking to Dan and Andrea, who were two of the nicest people on the face of the earth. However, I've only ever spoken to them fucked up and I'm not sure they actually exist, but let's just say they do, they did, it was awesome. So here's the problem with programs like Just Say No and movies like Less Than Zero. They convince you the issue with drugs is addiction. I knew that, so I stayed away from getting addicted. I made sure, this is not a choice for everyone, but for me, I made sure and was able to not get addicted. But what those programs don't tell you is, Drugs reset your level for joy. Nobody told me that the E I did in my 20s would steal the joy of my 30s or my 40s or the rest of my life because I swear to you, I was more happy in that silent bookstore dancing to my own private rave than I was at my own wedding, even though there was nothing wrong with my wedding my barometer for joy has been reset forever. Jamie Beth earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Our second winner this month was Randy Schultz, who shared his story of preparing to walk his daughter down the aisle. Here's Randy. It was a year, it was a year and a half ago. I'm standing beside my daughter, waiting to walk her up the aisle on the biggest day of her life. Our happy emotions are running high, almost out of control. When she looks over at me and says, Dad, quick, tell me something funny. Why, Amy, I ask. Because if you don't give me something else to think about, I'm afraid I might cry. Well, one thing my daughter Amy and I have always been good at is making each other smile. Amy was born on December 25th, a Christmas baby. So instead of being dropped off by the stork, she was brought to us by Santa. We, uh, my wife and I were so happy to have our brand new baby daughter. It was the 
best gift ever. It was uh, one of the most happy days that we had ever had. But what the happy days continued too. When she was about eight months old, it was something where she actually kind of graduated from the infant baby stage in my mind. I walked in to check her in her crib one afternoon and she was laying on her back and she had her legs and feet pulled all the way up over her so she could intently study her toes. And she was just completely lost in these toes when she saw me walk in the room and looked over at me. And when she saw me, she flashed the biggest, brightest smile I had ever seen in my life. And when I saw that smile, it just signaled to me that maybe I was doing okay as a dad. And from that moment on, in my heart, Amy was daddy's little girl. And that was the first in a long list of happy daughter days. Amy's, um, from, you know, we, as Amy grew up, I had to change my lifestyle and interests a little naturally. I mean, I went from being interested in football and motorcycle rides and classic rock to dollhouses and My Little Ponies and piano practice appreciation. But despite all that, the one good thing was Amy was very athletic and competitive, which I enjoyed and encouraged because a dad can only play so much dollhouse. And some of my first memories of competitiveness between Amy and I go back to when she was in middle school. She enjoyed softball and was on a youth softball team. And she was a pitcher and catcher. So I'd play catch with her so she could practice her pitching. And sometimes we would compete to see who could throw the most strikes in a row. Amy would usually win because she could pitch an softball underhand like a guided missile. So one day after we were walking away from one of those competitive games of catch, Amy looked over at me and said, you threw pretty good today, dad. Oh, well, thanks, Amy. Yeah, you weren't the best, but you weren't the worst either, dad. Keep practicing and maybe someday you might be able to throw like a girl. Well, I took that as a compliment and a challenge and maybe an indication that I had potential. So from that point on, Amy and I just enjoyed lots of different interests together. Um, we did all kinds of things from bicycle riding, hiking, uh, um, trips to New York City. Uh, we liked to do triathlons. We did um, tennis clinics and yoga classes. Um, most recently, we of course had to learn some dance steps for a father-daughter wedding dance. But the whole time we were always needling each other in a loving way about trying to keep up. So I, I, I remember really there's like three women that really kind of stand out as, you know, objects of my love and I was the objects of theirs in my life. My, my mom, who, my wife Gail and my daughter Amy. My mom loved me kind of as a work in progress, um, and she loved me despite the fact that there had to be a lot of forgiveness involved when I was a young boy growing up. My wife, well, she chose me as a husband, although when she did, she knew I was still kind of a fixer-upper project. And I know all my friends and family would say after 34 years, 
she is off to a really good start on that project. My wife, my, or my daughter, Amy, she didn't get to choose me. She was just kind of stuck with me. But all the way along, um, as far as being a dad, she always made me feel like I was pretty much set to go. Just occasional little fine tuning here and there. So after we're, um, as we, you know, kind of continue from those things back to the, the present moment that we were talking about, back to the present of being there, Amy looks over at me and says, Dad, because if you don't tell me something funny, I'm afraid I'm going to cry. So I look at her and she's looking expectantly at me for something to make her smile as we begin to walk down the aisle. All of a sudden I tell her, oh my gosh, Amy, your brother just sat your mom on the wrong side of the aisle with Jordan's family. What, she says? She stands up on her tiptoes trying to see over the congregation who at that same time all stood up and are looking back at her. Are you kidding me, Dad? Would I kid you, Amy? She looks at me with a knowing smile on her face and um, as, as we continue to walk down the aisle. Both of our faces have big grins on them now and our spirits are giggling. And I take one last glance at my daughter as we approach the altar where I'm going to put her hand into that of her Prince Charming. And she's, um, and, and just what comes back to my mind is memories of all those times of happy days that bridged the smile of that, the time of that child in the, in the crib to the smile on this happy bride. And behind my own smile, tears of joy that no one can see are kind of falling out of my memory and sprinkling my heart. Randy also earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up, we have Tony Crocomo, who told the story of his first fishing trip. When I was a kid, three, four, five years old, I, I desperately wanted to go fishing with my father, but every time I would ask him, the answer was always, you're too young. It's, 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 you're not old enough yet. And then the summer I turned five years old, I, I came into the kitchen as my, I heard my parents talking about an upcoming vacation. And I just started to pester my father. I said, dad, 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 dad. Can, when, when we go on vacation, when, dad, dad, when we go on vacation, can I go fishing with you this time? Can I, can I, can I? And he looked at me and he said, well, you're gonna need some stardust. Now, I had been hoping he would say yes. I was afraid he was going to say no, and I was totally confused by Stardust. Stardust? What do you mean? Well, well, it's a well-known fact among fishermen that if you have Stardust on your fishing pole, the first time you go fishing, you are guaranteed to catch the first fish. Made sense to me. I said, what? Where do, you, where do you get the stardust? I said, oh, don't worry about that. Your Uncle Harrison knows all there is to know about stardust. So you write him a letter, tell him you're going fishing with us, and he'll get you all the stardust you need. Don't worry about it. Okay, made sense. So my mother helped me write that letter to Uncle Harrison, and I was clutching that letter in my hand as the family station wagon turned left up to the the crunchy granite gravel driveway of my 
mother's homestead, Ma's house in Vermont. Now, when I was a kid, all of our vacations were to the same place, Ma's house. That white wood frame farmhouse on a little bit of a hill in an orchard in Vermont. Now, my mother was one of nine children. All nine children married. All nine children had children themselves. And every summer, all nine children and their spouses and their kids came to Ma's house. And Ma's house all summer long was this great ebb and flow of aunts, uncles, and cousins. And it was a wonderful experience. My father would go fishing with my uncles when we went to Vermont. And I was going to get to go with them this year. And there's, as we drive up that crunchy gravel driveway, I'm holding the letter in my hand. And there's Uncle Harrison in the side yard. And he's mowing the lawn. He's wearing a tie. Where did I get it from? I don't know. He's wearing a tie mowing the lawn. I get out of the car. I run down the drive with Uncle Harrison, clutching the letter. Uncle Harrison, Uncle Harrison. And he stops on the lawn and he says, well, little Tony. And, and back then, I was little Tony. My father was big Tony. But don't call me little Tony. But anyway. <laughs> he says, what have you got there? And he's mopping the brow with his kerchief. And what have you got there? He says, oh, it's a letter. Well, he opens the letter. He reads the letter. He says, oh, this is terrific. You're going to go fishing with us this year? That's wonderful news. <laughs> And don't you worry about a thing. This, this is the peak season for stardust. I won't have any trouble getting plenty. I ran up the driveway to tell my parents the amazing news. Well, a couple days later, I'm playing in the yard with my sisters and my cousins. And we're having a good time. And my father calls me into the barn. And he says, Tony, tomorrow you're going to have to, uh, tonight, you're going to have to go to bed early. I said, I didn't do it, Dad. I didn't do it. No, 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 no. You're going to have to go to bed early. Because tomorrow, we're going to get up before dawn and go fishing. So, <laughs> I was excited. And he gave me a, a yellow, a, a kid size yellow fiberglass fishing pole with an enclosed reel on it. And he showed me how to use it. And he said, now, when you go to bed tonight, you got to make sure you put this pole at the foot of the bed so Uncle Harrison can come in and sparkle, uh, sprinkle stardust on it. Because... You know, it's got to be at night. You got to be asleep. It's stardust. Made sense to me. So I went to bed so early that day, that night, that my, my, I could hear my sisters and my cousins still playing in the yard. It was light out. And I put, the, I put the fishing pole at the foot of the bed. And then after a while, it got dark. And I heard footsteps coming up, coming up the stairs and coming down the hallway toward my, toward my room. And I paused at the door of the room. And... Now, I was supposed to be asleep, I mean, but I was peeking, and I saw Uncle Harrison come in, and he went to the foot of the bread, and Uncle Harrison and the fishing pole are, are silhouetted against the moon-bright window. And I watch as he reaches into his pocket, and he sprinkles stardust on that fishing pole, and then tiptoes out of the room. Now, can you imagine how I felt? I mean, I'm five years old. I am thrilled. I am excited. I am happy. Well, the next morning, it seems like a moment later, my father, I hear my father saying, Tony, wake up, we're going fishing. So I jump out of bed. My father laughs to see that I am fully clothed, including shoes, because I wasn't taking any chances of being left behind because I wasn't ready. We get to the lake. We launch the boat. And the old Evinrude outboard motor coughs to life in a puff of blue smoke. 
and we are gliding across the clear, smooth, black water of that lake with the early morning mist rising up in it, and I am in love with fishing. And a few minutes later, the engine cuts, puts to a halt, and we drift for a second, and my father says, well, Tony, what do you think? Is this a good spot? I look around, I didn't know. I said, yeah, yeah, that's just, I just wanted the fish. He said, okay, well, you know, I will bait your hook for you. And then if you don't catch a fish in a few minutes, we'll go someplace else because the stardust on your fishing pole, if you don't catch a fish, it's because there's no fish here. Okay. Now, to this day, I don't know if they caught a fish earlier and put it on my line or if stardust really works. I'm open to either. But I do know that as soon as that red and white bobbin touched the water, it was tugged underneath the water and I was reeling in my first fish, a perch, keeper. Oh, when I think of that, I am in awe of my father and my uncles and all the trouble it took to make that happy moment. And these, these were tough guys. These were hard men. They, they led hard lives. They, they grew up in the midst of the Great Depression. They left school to go to work to support their families. And as young men, they were called off to a horrific war. They led hard lives, but they were not hardened by life. They knew all too well that in this life, you cannot eliminate life's sorrows, but they also knew that with a little effort, you can add joy. So take a tip from my fishing buddies, my father, and my uncles. Sparkle while you can. Create joy. Be someone stardust. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Elizabeth Ehrenberg. Liz shared about the lessons she's taken from her family's isolation during the pandemic. This is a story about how things change over time, especially childhood dreams. So when I was a child, I had many dreams. I wanted to become Annie Lennox. I wanted to start a drive through loose leaf tea stand. Um, and I wanted to um, be a famous actress who retired by selling turquoise necklaces on QVC one day. It was a very odd childhood I had. But one thing that never changed in my childhood dreams was to create a family of my own um, and to right a lot of the wrongs that happened in my early life. Um, so nine months after my husband and I had our rainbow baby, our first child, um, the pandemic hit. And uh, our, my husband and I are both um, musicians. And our careers in the music industry got kind of thrown up into limbo. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And all we really knew was we had to just make it through and protect our new child and stay healthy. Um, we live in York, but we don't have family here. So we were kind of um, basically like living on our own island for most of this pandemic experience. And um, so one thing that kept us sane through all of this was taking a walk every single day. And um, we walked through every single kind of climate. 
heat, rain, and snow. Um, there were days in the winter where we would go to the playground. We would leave these footprints in this, you know, like two feet of snow. And then we'd come back the next day and our footprints were the only ones there still. Um, and we got out every single day for sometimes hours. We would wind through neighborhood streets and trails and new paths, um, just discovering new things that we never had before. And through Zoom fatigue, through uncertainty, um, through being trapped alone with a baby who became a toddler, um, these walks were what kept us going. And um, we just lived kind of in a heap of snow pants and gloves and umbrellas um, that we just never ended up picking up off the floor because we kept going back to it. Um, and during these walks, um, we started to see the world in new ways through the eyes of our young child, showing him the moon for the first time, you know, um, getting into snowball fights and laughing, throwing leaves in the air, getting dirty. We upgraded to a jogging stroller. Um, we got us all snow, boot, snow boots and um, through one step at a time, we, we got through this time of intense isolation and uncertainty and also a time of being brand new parents and having no community, um, at least no like, you know, community right there. We knew we had them, but no family in town and, um, you know, no contact with people. Um, and I'm realizing now that things are going back to normal. Um, we're both getting our, uh, our professional lives back on track. Um, and our son is turning two this weekend and he's going to go to daycare in a couple weeks and start making his own friends. I mean, I can be his friend and his mom and his assistant and everything, but he's going to make his own friends and have his own life. <laughs> but as things are going back to normal, um, these walks of ours are becoming more of a weekly occurrence than a daily occurrence. And I'm a little sad about that. Um, with all the mixed emotions that this pandemic has brought all of us. I've realized that these walks were the one childhood dream that had never changed. I created my family and my family is what got me to where I am now because we leaned on each other. And those walks were some of the happiest moments of my whole life and the happiest days through no matter what was happening in the world. And uh, so just learning from that, I think I will always be in the present with my family all the time. Um, and that's my story. Thank you. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. Updates on our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at York Story Slam, as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to our 2021 sponsor, KBG Injury Law, whose generous support is making this season possible. 
We hope to see you virtually or on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Carla Wilson of Wilson Media Services. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson. You can learn more at wilsonmediaservices.com.